This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, and I'm in today for Jeremy Schwartz. Joining me here in the studio is Doug Puglisi, Director of Portfolio Services at Alpha Architect, our firm. Doug, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Two great guests in the studio with us today. We have both Ken and Jim. Uh, Ken, Jim, thanks for showing up. Glad to be here. Thank, thank you for having us. And today what we're going to be talking about is ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Programs. Uh, Ken, do you mind uh, just giving us a little background on yourself, uh, You know how you got into the ESOP business and what you're doing there? Well, um, I'm really not in the ESOP business. I'm in the plastic tubing and hose and uh, manufacturing business. Uh, I decided to use uh, the ESOP as a uh, ownership tool to uh, reinforce ownership and uh, reinforce uh, the um, uh, hard work that my employees have put in for so many years. And um, so we're located in Southampton, Pennsylvania. We uh, have 160 employees, and I did the ESOP in uh, two, 2006. Great. Jim, you, uh, you're also in the ESOP ecosystem here, CEO of uh, SES Advisors. You mind tell us a little bit about your background and how you stumbled into the ESOP world? Sure. I, <clears throat> I'm a lawyer by background, but we have both a law firm and an advisory and compliance firm, SES Advisors and Steiker, Green, Apple, and Fusco. And we focus almost exclusively on ESOPs, ESOP companies, and creating employee ownership. We were a national firm. We're headquartered here in Philadelphia. We've been doing this for about 30 years. Outstanding. And Doug, you're helping me co-host today. You mind just doing a quick uh, introduction to your background and how you got into the ESOP world? Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks, Wes. Uh, I, at uh, Alpha Architect, I manage a strategy focused on helping business owners who sell their companies to ESOPs to roll over those proceeds in a, in a diversified and very tax-efficient manner. I've uh, been in finance my whole professional career and uh, delighted to be here today with everyone. Great. And then Ken, let's let's shift back to you. You're you actually run an ESOP with within your firm. Do you mind just explaining just high level background for the the listeners here who may not even know what an ESOP is? W- what are they at a high level, and, and why would you as a business owner want to implement this in your company? Okay, uh, an ESOP is a retirement plan. That's it's set up by. Uh, it was part of the ERISA law that was uh, laid out in uh, in the um, 1970s by Russell Long. And um, so what it is, is you basically sell 
a uh, all or a portion of the shares of the company to an ESOP trust, and then all the employees have a, um, a, a an account within that uh, trust. So they have indirect ownership of of the company. Um, the uh, why I did it, it it was a um, it was a long term. Uh, objective of mine to give ownership to the uh, employees because I knew I wouldn't get a high performance organization unless I gave ownership. Owners tend to look at the business differently than employees. If you're an owner, you look at ways to uh, decrease scrap, um, uh, turn off the lights, use your energy uh, differently, um, uh, maybe make that extra sales call if you're a salesperson. So it, it changes your mindset about work. And that's, that's a pretty cool thing. Hey, Jim, uh, ESOP companies, they seem to be hidden in plain sight all around us. Uh, how widespread are ESOPs in the country? Well, according to the National Center for Employee Ownership, there are about 7,000 ESOP companies nationally. Most of them are hidden in plain sight because they do the ordinary business in America. There tend to be middle-sized companies such as Ken's company, which makes flexible tubing, and you're unlikely to have heard of it unless you're in the market for flexible tubing. There's a couple of very large, well-known ESOP companies or consumer brand companies such as uh, Public Supermarkets or King Arthur Flower is a brand that people often have heard of. And New Belgium Beer is one people not only often heard of but often partaken in. <laughs> but there's a lot of very basic companies. There's about three or 400 here in Pennsylvania where we are. And, and one of the most famous ones here in Pennsylvania is Wawa. That's a 41% uh, ESOP. Sure, yeah. What we're, we have experience when our old partners was associated with it. So, And I know that it's done wonders for them, and they've built a great owner-operator culture. It's, it's interesting. If you go into a Wawa and go into another type of store like that, I won't name any names, there's a completely different attitude with the um, customer experience. You, you, you feel it from the, uh, the customer, and, and I think that's part of the ownership attitude. Totally agree. Hey, describe the sort of company that can implement an, an ESOP. Well, it's pretty much across the board economically. There are ESOPs. I've been inside of companies that do everything from very white-collar, knowledge-based work, such as engineering firms, insurance brokerages, marketing firms, and the like, to the most basic of manufacturing, making and cutting and bending metal, and all sorts of other companies somewhere in between in distribution, in all sorts of consumer products. ESOPs are really pretty much in any business that has a relatively stable workforce. Ken, uh, in addition to running your business, you know, you're widely regarded as an evangelist for the adoption of ESOPs more broadly in this country. You're, you're chairman, you're founding chairman of the Pennsylvania Center of Employee Ownership. What sorts of benefits can ESOPs catalyze for a company that adopts one in, in your experience? It has been um, proven uh, through statistics that uh, uh, the companies actually make more dollars, bottom line. They ha provide better um, salaries. They have better retirements. They lay off employees less during downtimes. And uh, their, their companies are transformative. Let me, let me just tell you a quick story. Um, uh, I do MBWA 
managing by wandering around every time I'm in the office. And I usually do it in the morning. We have many fork trucks in the organization moving raw material to the machinery and moving uh, finished goods back into the warehouse. We have a 180,000 square foot uh, facility in Southampton. So one day when I'm doing my MBWA, I, I see one of the uh, fork truck drivers laying a patch, spinning the wheels of the uh, fork truck uh, on the factory floor. And he's beating up the uh, wheels of the fork truck. He's beating up the fork truck itself and the floor. So I go up to him and I say, why is it that you're beating up your fork truck? And he kind of steps back and his eyes go big. And then I say, here's a better question. Why are you beating up Joe's fork truck? And I point to Joe across the way who's running a machine and his head goes down. It's a much different conversation that management can have to the group of workers. They own the equipment. They own that scrap. They own that fork truck. They own that machinery. So they take better care of it. And so when, when the rank and file start really getting that, it's transformative of how they view the company and how they view work. Yeah, Ken, just I know from my experience in being buried in academic research, especially in the corporate finance literature, there's tons of evidence that backs up exactly what you're saying, where if people have ownership or, you know, they're not just an employee, they act better because it's their house. They don't want to burn it down. Um, do you have any hard statistics or research that you've seen or done that are as related to this, where we can actually quantify these anecdotes? That well, we well there have? is research from the National Center for Employee Ownership that suggests that ESOP companies are anywhere between 3 and 12% more productive measuring worker productivity than non-employee-owned companies controlling for industry and size. And there's data that also suggests those companies are more profitable as a result. So there's some, there also is evidence that shows that ESOP companies tend to lay off fewer people in a recession. They tend to withstand bank leverage better. There's fewer defaults on bank loans. So as one would imagine, when you have people who are thinking and acting like owners, the companies tend to behave a little bit differently as well. Yeah, Jim, I've, I've read a, a statistic that uh, ESOP companies uh, are bottom line 8 to 10 percent uh, more profitable than a, uh, a peer in the same category. So profitability is a big thing. And interestingly enough, I think the mechanism is very much along the lines of Ken's story, which is people sort of think mentally that maybe the company will become wildly more productive because people will think, I'm going to make a few more bucks, and they're looking at their own pocketbook. And in really reality, the mechanism tends to be much more about people behaving like a team mm -hmm. and having other people watching. If you're sitting next to somebody who's spending their entire day, you know, looking at the internet, uh, checking ESPN, or worst of all, watching porn or doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Right now, if I work in Ken's company and I'm doing that, before the ESOP, I say, that's Ken's problem. Why is he being a bad manager and uh, not taking care of it? If I'm the owner, I want to know why somebody else isn't pulling their end of the weight. And so a lot of the mechanism for productivity and profitability tends to be not people watching and policing each other, but people feeling like they have some connection to the company and each other 
that makes and motivates them to behave a little differently. And I've actually seen that at New Age, um, and as well as other ESOP companies. I've heard stories about uh, uh, self-policing, if you will, where employees will talk to other employees about this stuff because they're taking money out of not only their, their own pocket, but out of everybody in the whole team's pocket. And that's not fair. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, <clears throat> one thing I was interested in, there's a lot of talk now about like income inequality, where it's like the, the big boss and then the low-level employees. It seems like ESOP's almost create a culture where people don't think like that anymore. It's us against the big boss, like everyone's on the same team. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair assessment, something you guys see in your own experiences? Well, well the, it's not clear. You know, there, I think in any organization, there is always resistance to hierarchy, particularly if you're not at the top of the hierarchy. <laughs> I think it is much more the idea that everybody is participating in the outcome. And so originally the whole idea of ESOPs came about because a fellow by the name of Lewis Kelso wrote in the 50s talking about the idea that if we didn't have some mechanism to broaden ownership, we were gonna have a very small group of owners and a very large group of people working for those owners and that would inevitably create a lot of social conflict. And lo and behold, there's some truth to that as it's occurred. And the idea of ESOPs was to allow ordinary employees to benefit from the leveraged buyout techniques that anybody else would use to buy a company and have the ability to own companies using borrowed money in the same way and therefore have broader ownership. And in fact, the title of one of his famous books was How to Turn 100 Million Americans into Capitalists. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of positive characteristics of the ESOP just from a business operation standpoint, ownership culture. It, in, if I'm a business owner listening to this, what are the characteristics that actually make the best candidates for an ESOP? Well, if you look at the bulk of the folks that we end up working with who decide that the ESOP is the right way and tool for them to go, and by the way, much as Ken and I can both be evangelical, we truly don't believe that everybody should do an ESOP. No. I, ag I agree with that 100%. But you're looking at companies typically that have more than about 20 or 25 employees. You're looking at companies that are not necessarily big, hot targets for much larger entities, people you know, that don't you know, have major growth, major strategic benefits, so that somebody's going to back up a bunch of trucks with a bunch of bales, $100 bills, and say, here it is. You're looking for companies that are slow, medium growth companies, stable cash flow. You hopefully have successor management either identified or you're looking at how it's going to be managed. You have owners who are wanting to be patient. They don't need all of their money tomorrow. They're not running off to Florida with a golf bag over their shoulder tomorrow. Typically, you have business owners who have some feelings about the company they've built. They have a legacy motivation or concern or they have a I had a fellow who ended up doing an ESOP explaining that in the small town he was in he went to eat lunch in the diner every day and he felt he would no longer be welcomed in the diner if he sold the company and the business moved out of town and finally really the idea that ESOPs compete in a world of alternatives and so we're really looking at companies where the mix of the employee benefit, the financial tax and psychological benefits 
basically outweigh the alternatives. And ordinarily, they will do so unless you're dealing with folks who have really high premium offers out there or are really looking to get out all at once and quickly. Thanks, Jim. You, uh, know, you know, Wes, I'd like to add to that list, which is a very, very important list. Um, there, there's a built-in buyer, too. So let's say there's not a market. No one really wants this organization because it's not a fit for their, their uh, organization or there's no roll-up involved. So you have a built-in buyer, which is very nice for the owner. But also, getting back to the community aspect of it, if you have an organization that's, let's say, 500 people and it's in a uh, community of 5,000 people and it gets bought by a multinational that moves it to North Carolina or worse to Mexico, that affects that community greatly. And you were talking about income inequality. There's tertiary effects of other businesses, such as the bakery and the, uh, the um, uh, gas station and the uh, dry cleaner. Th that affects that uh, a community greatly. And ESOP companies do not move because the owners are there. Yeah. Th thanks. Just want to remind the listeners here, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio Sirius XM 111. I'm Wes Gray sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz, and I've got Doug Puglisi, and we're talking with Ken Baker, CEO of New Age Industry and ESOP Evangelist, and Jim Steiker, Chairman and CEO of SCS Advisors, also an ESOP Evangelist. And an ESOP. And an ESOP. Both, everyone's an ESOP fan here. Hey, I, I just want to go back to uh, something you both touched on, which uh, I guess is, is what is meant by ownership culture. That doesn't just come about, Jim suggested, that doesn't just come about by putting an ESOP in place. You actually have to take steps to help under, help employees understand that they're owners and what that means. I'm, I'm always surprised when I have clients who, we talk about this and they come back a year later and said, we, well, we, we put the ESOP in, we told everybody what we were doing, we told them how great it was going to be, and it's a year later and everything seems exactly the same. What happened? And obviously, it's not a one-time tell everybody that they're owners and expect that people will start uh, you know, working until 7 o'clock at night every day, working harder and smarter. There's a long-term education process involved. And I know Ken's done a lot of work in his company, and I think one of the things we see is that the most successful folks at building a culture not only build the team and cultural aspect of being an ESOP, but also really focus in on education, focus on how to tell people what's important in the business. If you don't give people a scorecard, they can't play the game. And so a lot of times, the easy one to see is in a manufacturing company. Every manufacturing company I've ever been in that has done an ESOP seems to have then ended up focusing on scrap because that's the easiest thing to deal with and control in a manufacturer. And you almost always see with, if you educate people on the effect of scrap on their future value, mm. you'll get people very motivated and focused. You'll get those kinds of benefits that you perceive. Sure. Um, matter of fact, uh, that's one of the downsides. So let's let's be totally transparent here on both sides of this thing. Yes, I'm, I'm an advocate for uh, ESOPs, but there are some downsides with it. And, and one of the downsides is this communication effort that has to happen, not just once, not twice, but it's ongoing. Every employee has to really be educated about what is the ESOP, how does it work, and how does the company make profit, and how can that employee 
uh, work to make profit for that because then that uh, translates into uh, share price increase and dividends, increased dividends. Um, another downside with the ESOP is they won't get it right away. You, you will know, the, the, uh, the founder or the CEO will say, I've done a great thing for these people and they're not getting it right away. But they will if you do this communications and then when they start getting their uh, yearly statements and they start seeing the value go up and they start seeing the, uh, the dividends and share price, they will start getting it. And so that's a cool thing. Yeah, Ken, but, just but to, ESOP, oh yeah, go for it, Jim. I, I just wanted to say, ESOPs are probably, when they work well, are the best evidence of the old famous Peter Drucker quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast. Absolutely. Hey, hey, so you have anecdotally backed up all of the academic literature and the surveys and the studies that support uh, why ESOPs are good for the economy. Uh, Congress has also recognized the benefits of broad-based employee ownership and as put in place a number of incentives to promote their formation. W without diving in too deeply into the weeds, Jim, maybe you can describe what some of those benefits are in broad strokes? Well, ta the tax benefits sometimes tend to be the headline that gets people to be interested. It's sort of the banner on the front of uh, the door. And put simply, the benefits from a tax perspective with ESOPs are first of all the opportunity to fund the purchase of the stock of an owner with tax deductible dollars, the ability to create a benefit for employees in stock that they don't have to pay taxes on immediately because we're using a retirement plan mechanism here, the ability of a company owned by an ESOP to avoid, in some cases, completely paying any current taxes on their income. And finally, the ability of business owners who sell to an ESOP under certain circumstances to defer or eventually permanently avoid capital gains tax on the sale. Sure. So one thing that I do talk to uh, CEOs and founders about is it's almost the secret sauce of this whole thing, which is the tax benefits, the money that was going to the IRS before you did an ESOP actually goes to the ESOP and then goes to pay back the loan. There's no other financial vehicle which allows you to do that. And if you do a um, partial ESOP, such as what I have, I have um, I sold 49% of the ESOP to the employees in three different tranches. I did 30%, 10%, 9%. And I did an extensive um, education over that 10-year period. Share price has gone up 600%. So my share, my value that I've taken off the table is incredible. But also, it has created great wealth for all the 160 employees of, of New Age Industries as well. And Ken, you're a great example of a company. A lot of the business owners we speak with, especially when they're in their 50s, they're sort of getting toward the end, and they're very anxious to take a few chips off the table. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the world and say, gee, I've got this valuable company. It's not so big that I've got everybody in the world knocking on my door where I'm going to go public tomorrow, but i got a pretty good valuable company, but I have most of my eggs in one basket. And the world of 
buyers for a minority interest in new age industries is probably, shall we say, a very tiny world out there as it would be for most privately held companies. And ESOPs are really one of the only mechanisms out there where the owner of a closely held company can go and create internally a friendly buyer for a minority interest in the company and then reap the benefits of having shared that ownership of you have by watching employees now motivated and involved create more value. And I would add that when you sell a minority interest in your company to an ESOP, you're not impairing the strategic value of that company to a third-party buyer down the road. You're not causing anyone else to say, hey, I, I can't touch that company now because someone else owns a piece of it. Now, I always tell people, you know, if you sell 30% of your company, uh, and maybe you sell your 30% for $3 million because your company is worth $10 million. And three years later, somebody starts backing up the truck and they say, well, here's $20 million if you'll sell to us. The answer is you may only own 70%, so you're 70% rich at that point rather than 100% rich, but you've already taken money off the table and there's nothing that's going to impair that buyer from buying the company. So. The way I'm hearing this, as an outsider on ESOPs, we get a minimized taxes, increased productivity, everyone on average seems to make a lot more money. I want to circle back to the potential cost, just to make sure we clarify that with folks. And you talked about the educational effort, and just, just so we get a sense of how big or how small that is, are we talking one week, have a meeting, is this like a year-long massive management effort to get the employees on board just because this is obviously an awesome vehicle for a business owner but let, let's make sure we we put a little more emphasis on the pain and anguish potentially attached to it absolutely so um i would highly recommend any uh, uh, ceo or founder that decides to do an esop hires a um a communication firm it's not that expensive. It's probably one of the le least expensive uh, service providers that you will need when you do a um, ESOP. Of course, the the lawyer is probably the most expensive. Of course, Jim. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll throw him in the trash can after this. Right. Right. So, so are you going to back up the bus over me now? <laughs> <laughs> no. Come on. I'm just kidding with you. Of course. So, um, so you have to uh, then have a um, an opening uh, meeting with all hands on deck. The, um, the communication firm comes in, does a dog and pony, and actually says, "What did this person do to you?" And what does this mean to you? And uh, some of these firms do a, a game. Somebody plays the bank. Somebody plays the owner. Somebody plays um, uh, the uh, the ESOP. And and so money gets passed around so they understand it. So what we have done is, as New Age, we we decided to train the trainer. So I actually do the training of the new team members because I think my voice means a lot more than if I gave it to my HR person to do it. So we do five hours, five one-hour sessions with every new uh, team member. And we do those sessions maybe twice a year. So it's a, it's, it's a fair uh, amount of time. But we also um, do uh, uh, messages in our quarterly news uh, our quarterly newsletter and also our quarterly company meetings we always talk about the esops in our different uh, um, communications to our uh, employees and then we do a big um, 
uh, spring uh, meeting with all hands on deck where the share price is announced. And that's a big whoop-de-doo. And we, um, uh, we have guessed the share price and we give out a, a, a nice prize and, and, and you have some fun with it. And so, yes, it does cost a little bit, not that much, but you have to do it on an ongoing basis. You can't, it's not one and done. Yeah. Now on the, I guess another potential negative is if, if you have that meeting and that share price is a lot less people start getting anxious like how do ESOPs deal with that I guess reality of, of the world sometimes well management better have the reason why and probably everybody in the audience does know if if the organization has done a good job of communicating all the way through the year it, it problems don't happen just falling off the edge. It's probably they lost a big client or a new product didn't go to market when it was supposed to. It was probably the business strategy or management of the organization that has caused the share price to go down. And you have to point to that. And that can be a rallying call to we need to do better. If we all, we're all in this together, share price went down by 10%, what do we got to do to get the share price up? And you get everybody coming up with ideas, and, and that, that can actually make the, the share price go up even more than it was before. Sometimes um, uh, dips in things actually make for a nice positive. Hmm. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, so stay tuned, everyone. We're going to continue this conversation about ESOPs after a short break. Just a reminder, I'm Wes Gray, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wes Gray, sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz today. My guests today are Ken Baker, the CEO of New Age Industries, and Jim Steiker, Chairman and CEO of SES Advisors. Joining me in our discussion today is Doug Puglisi, who works with me at Alpha Architect. Gentlemen, thank you for being back here. Um, before we uh, continue our excellent conversation here on ESOPs, um, I'd like to switch it over to Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and Future for Investors. Professor, what's your take on this week's market activity? Well, I'm looking at the Dow today, and as we speak, it's down 31 points. Uh, it's the first time... Uh, that we haven't moved 100 up or down um, to show you how volatile we have been recently. Uh, but I think, uh, I think the biggest pressure on the equity markets is going to be that interest rate. Now, we got the FOMC uh, minutes on Wednesday, and it was, though nothing new was in it, it reminded us that they are on an aggressive path of moving rates upward. And in fact, some of the FOMC members uh, are now talking about not only our risks balanced between inflation and uh, uh, deflation, but there may actually be more risks of inflation. Um, as we know, oil hit a three-year high, gasoline hit a three-year high, the CRB index, which is a uh, broad-based uh, commodity index, over 20 commodities, uh, is approaching a three-year high. Um, uh, we saw the PPI, producer price index, moved up more than expected. The CPI was pretty much as expected, but core rates now are up 2%. It looks like the PCE deflator coming out is going to be 2%. And by the way, all this is happening uh, in spite of the fact that the Citibank economic surprise indicator, which talks about real economic growth, has not been doing that well. Uh, a real activity uh, is not booming. Um, First quarter GDP of people I follow look like it's going to be under 2%, although 
second quarter is looking close to three, but um, certainly not as rosy on the real side as we saw in the middle of January, yet commodity prices and prices are upward. All this means that I think the Fed is still going to do four rate hikes unless we get a significant slowdown in labor market uh, growth. Um, and although last Friday, no, we definitely did get uh, a slowdown, that really just offset the uh, previous uh, month of February. So I think that this is going to bedevil the market, and it's going to make it, despite good earnings, and we're into earnings season, it's going to make it a tough time for this market, equity market, to make big headway uh, in 2018. Excellent. Ken, Jim, Doug, any questions for the professor? Professor, are you a buyer or a seller right now? Well, I'm a I'm a holder right now, <laughs> but I have a big equity position. I certainly, I mean, I certainly, I, the prices are are good. I mean, we're we're selling around 17, 18 times this year's earnings, um, uh, which is quite fine in a low interest rate environment and even a slightly higher interest rate environment. But if you think as I do that the ten year is going to three and a quarter by the end of the year. Um, it's going to be hard for stocks to certainly post double-digit gains. I would not sell, and um, I still think emerging markets uh, looks fairly good, and, econo- and even Europe, although its economic slowdown index uh, has actually gone down more than the U.S., is still selling in a cheaper. Now, they have a different product mix than we do towards cheaper P.E. stocks, uh, but I still think market is definitely a hold, not a sell. It's just that uh, all the... Uh, optimism and enthusiasm that we saw in January, um, I think, uh, has disappeared, and uh, we're going to have a tougher time. Thank you. Professor, this is Wes. I have to ask real quick. I know you're a trend follower at heart. It's in your book. If if it breaks the 200-day moving average, are you going to take some chips off the table, <laughs> or are you long and strong? Yeah, I have a chapter in my book about the 200-day moving average, and, you know, uh, the answer, as, as time has gone on, I mean, I think it was, I forget which year it was a few years ago, where it went up and back to 200. If you bought and sell, you would have been chopped up to bits and spit out with transactions costs. So um, uh, I, I do think we uh, had the momentum broken by that big uh, correction late uh, January, early February. Um, and I do look at the 200 moving day, but no, I think prices are still... Uh, cheap enough that it really won't induce me to do any uh, any selling. Well, thanks for all that, Professor, and you have a great weekend. Yes, thank you very much. All right. So back to the studio here with uh, Ken Baker and Jim Steiker. I think, Doug, you wanted to start the conversation off here. Uh, yeah. Go go for it. Uh, well, we've, we've heard such wonderful things about the tax benefits that ESOPs create. On the one hand, more efficient, more productive companies, how ESOPs enhance the economics of a community. Why doesn't everyone do an ESOP? I mean, what's, what are we missing? Every once in a while, we do this pitch well enough that we get that question. And I think there are really two big enemies of ESOPs, really three if you really go forward with it. The first is complexity. ESOPs are a complex regulated structure. You have to deal with lawyers and financial advisors and all sorts of other professionals, most of whom you'd rather not see or talk to or pay. <laughs> So I'd say complexity is certainly an enemy. We're in a regulated, the price of the tax advantages is the regulated process. The second is cost. It costs money to hire advisors to do this. 
doesn't tend to cost as much as selling your company to somebody else, but it tends to cost more than doing nothing. So people uh, can get a little focused on the cost. The third is the world is something better, and the fourth is inertia. The, the world is something better is somebody willing to pay enough of a premium or come up with a deal or a structure that better meets the needs of the shareholders. And the fourth is inertia. People don't tend to do things until they have to. One of the things I've noted for years is that you know, a lot of businesses have a selling cycle that's measured in days or weeks or months, and mine is measured in weeks and sometimes decades. I have worked with companies on ESOPs where my first meeting with them was literally a dozen years earlier when they saw maybe this would be a good idea, and you get those calls out of the blue of, hey, I'm back. <laughs> and that's the inertia factor of it takes a long time for people to figure out what they want to do. And that comes back to the idea that when you're talking to business owners about ESOPs, you're not talking about an investment in the stock market. You can't have the conversation that Wes and Pro Professor Siegel just had of should I buy or sell, let me walk to the market or go onto the computer and make a decision. You're talking about people's livelihoods and identities. So business owners are really interesting characters to deal with, and entrepreneurs are even more interesting characters to deal with as they go through this decision-making process and they try and sort out for themselves where their values are, what they care about. And there's a piece of the decision that always gets made by algebra, meaning what are the dollars at the end of the day and how it works. But there's a large piece that gets made with people's guts. They decide it's time and they decide what they want to do based on their own gut about what is the best thing to do for them. Yeah, there's also a, um, a drowning out of the ESOP by uh, private equity firms and business brokers that are looking to uh, uh, get companies bought for their clients. And, and there's so much money out there, as everybody knows, there's uh, you know, so much cash that um, uh, the conversations via email, FedEx uh, packages showing up at your doorstep, uh, phone calls from business brokers and private equity firms. It just is a drumbeat every day. I get them, and, and I'm sure most companies do because there's so much cash. There's not a lot of people that are pushing ESOPs. That's one reason why I got into this this whole thing, because I wanted to um, uh, you know, G Jim does as as a uh, service provider for the industry, and there's other service providers. But um, from a true marketing thing, I wanted to uh, set up a organization that actually markets this to guys like me, and that uh, show that there is an alternative. And and I and I submit to the the audience here that if if ESOPs are put on the table along with uh, the private equity the multinational, or um, uh, maybe even liquidating the company, which is another option, uh, the ESOP will get its fair share of deals because there is these um, uh, owners and founders that have this soft spot in their hearts for their employees, for the, the legacy, for the community. Um, so I, 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 I think if, it gets drowned out. I just want to add that uh, hearing this conversation about the culture and and thought thinking around ESOPs very much reminds me of the kind of culture inside family-owned businesses where 
over generations now a family's been owned by a family and it feels to me like it's a very interesting alternative for the likes of family business owners who struggle with this question of what's the future hold? We deal with a lot of family businesses and I'd say less so than it used to be. Family business used to be almost a religion. There was a whole coterie of advisors whose sole goal was to deal with the transition of businesses to the next generation. Without any data to support it, I would take the guess that fewer businesses are being transferred, that are valuable, are being transferred between family members. Uh, some of it is, is that the wealth created in these businesses tend to create opportunities for the kids that may be beyond or different from the opportunities to continue into the business. But I think, again, family businesses, ESOPs are variants on how to deal with wealth transfer, business transfer. And we are small voices in a world of large voices. And despite Ken's occasionally well-justified complaint about how much ESOP lawyers and advisors <laughs> cost, the reality is, is that if somebody wants to figure out how to make the most money in life, they're going to do it buying and selling companies, not right. doing mm -hmm. ESOPs. And so typically the marketing tends to follow where the uh, money is, and the money is very much around transfers to private equity, transfers to strategic buyers, investment banking, and the like. So we, Ken and I, are very involved with the Pennsylvania Center for Employee Ownership, which is part of the larger movement to create state employee ownership centers around the country, where the idea is to at least create an alternate voice and an alternate spigot of information out there. Well, so let's um, let's ask a direct question then that you've uh, addressed kind of implicitly here, which is, is an ESOP, is the formation of an ESOP an act of charity on the part of business owners who implement them? And let's say a business owner is contemplating an exit strategy. Is she going to have to suffer a haircut in terms of the value that she receives for the sale of her shares? Well, the valuation should follow pretty much what a financial buyer, such as a private equity firm, would pay. We're looking at the company and saying, effectively, what's the present value of the future cash flows of the company risk-adjusted, which is what a private equity buyer does and what an independent valuation firm does in the context of an ESOP. The trade-off tends to be that private equity firms offer somewhat more cash at a closing and strategic buyers even more so offer more cash as a at a closing. And the compensations to a business owner for taking less cash at closing is more involvement and more control over the company in the interim to be able to participate actively, control the destiny of the company, and also possibly some future upside. Ken's a great example of selling the company in stages and really reaping the benefit of the increased performance of the company while having been able to take some chips off the table. Well, that's a very, it's, it's a very good point. Um, the, the share price has gone up 600% of new age. So I sold uh, the first tranche at $45 a share. Then I sold uh, the next at 2006. Then at 2012, I sold 10% at uh, $180 a share. And then I've uh, in 2016, I sold um, another 9% at um, uh, $318 a share. So I have, I think I have gotten strategic value out of my shares, and I still have 51% shares left. 
So who knows where the share price is going to go in the future. And I still have that ability to get the value out of those shares. Um, Ken's one of many clients I have where I wish I had to, had the foresight to ask to be paid in stock rather than cash. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, here's a here's an interesting thing. You know, we we, we talk about um, strategic buyers, and um, they will pay more because one and one equals three. If if my competitor bought New Age, they would probably take us off the table, raise prices take a uh, couple handfuls of technical people, uh, shut down our plant in uh, Southampton, and, and monetize the, the whole operation. But I submit to you, um, if, if an owner gets, let's say, $25 million for selling to an ESOP at the end of the day, and the strategic buyer uh, offers an extra three, four, five million million, how much is enough? Will that four or five million dollars really make a material difference in his life? And if he does do that, what are the downsides of, of doing that deal with a strategic buyer? No legacy. All these people are out of a job, layoffs. Um, uh, the community maybe is uh, harmed by the, the plant being moved. All these uh, issues. So how much is enough? It's an interesting question to ask. And I always ask, um, and the, 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 these are two questions that Jim actually taught me, which are, what are the hopes of your business when you sell? And this is another better question. What are the fears that you fear if you sell? What could be the downside? Yeah, Ken, I think it, what's really interesting here, just again, as an outsider listening to you, there's a huge movement right now towards ESG kind of impact investing where more and more people are starting to think like, you know, how much is enough? And, you know, if I sell this to the strategic buyer and they rip everyone out and they go to Mexico and I just screwed over like a whole community, like that's that probably matters to me as a person in that community because now I'm going to be on a you know people are going to be witch hunting after me so bad karma. um yeah bad karma <laughs> it's just it seems like aesop's um <clears throat> despite we were talking about this conflict where you know the bankers maybe don't get paid as much mm -hmm. I, I i'm bullish i'm feeling bullish the more, more you guys are talking <laughs> about this because i feel like impact and esg and want to have a lasting you know mm -hmm. societal community element is is a interesting thing so um just remind to our listeners here i'm wes gray and you're listening to behind the markets and i'm here in the studio with doug puglisi of alpha architect and our guests are ken baker the ceo of new age industry esop evangelist and jim steiker chairman and ceo of ses advisors also an esop evangelist and a affordable low-cost lawyer who will get the job done um so we we we, we backed the bus off of him and hooked him up um <laughs> So, kid, I, I think he's caught underneath it. Oh my gosh! Well, that's why. That's why I try to. I, I, I try to pull the bus off of him and, and give the pitch. He, he's you know he's he's cheaper than the investment bankers. Oh uh, yes, yes. I'll take Jim over in a <laughs> over a private equity any day. Sure. So, so Ken, just one last follow up there. In your heart of hearts, do you believe that? Had you done a strategic buyout or financial buyer transaction, you would end up probably being worse off just on a strictly financial basis. That's kind of what I'm hearing. I, th I think I would be long term. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm not 
I'm not going to sell the 51% until you know who knows what. My, my people are always asking me, Ken, when are you selling the 51%? Because they see the share price and, and dividends and all that. But um, let's say I sell it in another uh, seven to eight years and the share price goes up another 300%. I would have never gotten that total value way way back when in two, two, 2006. Well, everybody has to deal eventually with liquidity and succession in their companies. And liquidity is a good thing. So it lets money be invested somewhere else in more diversified ways. It lets people plan their lives with some greater level of security and uh, planning. But on, when you look at how you're going to do it, you not only look from a financial point of view, and ESOPs often are the best financial alternative, you have to look holistically. You have to say, what's going to make me happier and have a better life at the end of the day? And some of that's money, but some of that is the rest of the story. And if you talk to folks who sell their companies, particularly to private equity as it happens, you don't always hear a lot of happy stories. So, so this brings up a, probably a good question. The name of this show is Behind the Markets, and we probably have a lot of financial advisors listening today. W what would you say to a financial advisor who deals with business owner clients? Uh, how, would you, uh, how would you advise him to consider introducing this concept to his clients? Well, I would tend to think this is a very attractive uh, um, business model for a financial advisor because he's got probably he or she's got clients that are part of the silver tsunami, which is all these uh, baby boomers that are looking to get liquidity with their business. And a financial advisor that is maybe um, uh, looking for cash from a client, uh, this is a way to actually get a, a client to um, uh, have equity that has equity in the client, turns it into cash, and then the client's got to actually do something with that cash. And of course, the financial advisor takes that and invests it in shares uh, in, in large companies or bonds or what, what have you. So I, I think it's a very attractive thing. And there's another aspect of this. If the financial advisor is truly a trusted advisor, he or she should be talking about these types of things and, and giving the whole picture of um, uh, what are the options for their client. And ESOP is one of those very important things, and it should be put on the table if their client is looking to uh, do a uh, exit or a secession plan. And one practical point, which is many financial advisors have clients where they would believe, and it's in their best interest of their clients, to be more diversified. The client has too much concentrated mm -hmm. risk mm -hmm. in a closely held company. And of course, there's a great deal of inertia for privately held business owners in dealing with liquidity. And one of the introductions is, here's a way to create some liquidity and some diversification without upsetting the whole apple cart, without radically changing the daily life of the business owner or entrepreneur, which is often the real reason why they won't consider doing anything with their closely held company. And they can still have total control of the organization if they sell just 30% or 40%. They yeah. can do whatever they want with it. So, so talk about the advisor universe. If, if a business owner is considering an ESOP, what is the preponderance of expertise out there among attorneys, uh, accountants, and so forth? I mean, would you? Go to your general counsel to have him serve as your ESOP advisor? 
absolutely not. Um, uh, as Jim mentioned, uh, ESOPs are more complex, and you want to use service providers that have done several of these, um, and not just one or two. Um, you don't want your service providers to learn on your dime because it will cost you a lot more. So there are um, uh, ESOP lawyers across the country that do this. We have several here that are very good in Pennsylvania. You need um, uh, evaluation firms. You, you need uh, third-party administrators. And your accountant. You may have to change your accountant because uh, the accountant really has to know um, how to handle the balance sheet more specifically. And so that may be a downside too. Um, and you, you want to have an accountant that, that has done uh, several of these things and has them under their belt. The first step is usually to find an advisor who can be either a finance-oriented or a legal-oriented professional who can give a fairly comprehensive explanation and view of how it might work based presumably on a fair bit of experience. And if you can find somebody that can act as that kind of a quarterback, they can bring you into ESOP land such as it is. So, General, we're having a wrap-up here, but uh, real quick question. Leave the audience with some resources. How, how can listeners find you, gentlemen? You got a website? What, what's, the, what's the best way to learn more about what you've done? And Well, um, as the Pennsylvania Center for Employee Ownership, we are uh, on the Internet, uh, uh, PA. Um, geez, I don't even know what the website is. Uh, org. And then there's another national association, the nceo.org, that they have a, a wonderful um, a, amount of uh, material, uh, training material, and um, uh, they're out in Oakland. And then there's the ESOP Association as well. And, and our company is uh, SES Advisors, www.sesadvisors.com. Ken, Jim, thanks for coming in today. I'd also like to thank my host, uh, Doug Puglisi here, as well as our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Tune in next week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.